Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Baha'i Blogcast, it's me, Rain Wilson. Uh, coming to you from Toronto, Canada, where I seem to be interviewing about half of the population of Toronto for Baha'i Blogcast. Mary and Clark Donnelly are here, Susan Gamage, Erica Batdorf, and another Ontarian, Siamak Hariri, who has an inordinate amount of I's and A's in his name. I was just saying to him, half of the letters in his entire name are I's or A's. So for those who don't know, Siamak is the multi-award winning architect from Toronto, Canada, who is the architect for the Baha'i House of Worship for South America, which is located in Santiago, Chile, which just opened up. He is also a tremendous speaker about spiritual themes, architectural themes, uh, has a big hit TED Talk, which I'd love to hear more about. Siamak Hariri. Hi, how are you? Hi, Rain. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me in your home, and thanks for agreeing to sit down and, and speak with me. And uh, sorry for making fun of your name. Now, what did you say? You said before you had a job at McDonald's and they called you Sam. What was that? <laughs> well, you, it's one of those things that um, when I was 14, I was working at McDonald's, the only place that would hire me at 14. And, Here in Canada? Yeah. Uh -huh. And I remember uh, they said, we're just going to call you Sam. <laughs> I remember it was one of those things like, do I want this to stick or do I really want to keep my name? Because, you know, when we first came here, uh, there were only six Persian families in Toronto. and uh, No kidding. This was like in 1902? <laughs> something like that for Toronto. It was 1966. Okay. I was six years old. Mm. And we used to have dinners at each other's homes, you know, and it didn't matter, you know, Jewish, Baha'i, Muslim. We just were all together all the time and uh, no one took any notice of anything. It was just we needed each other. We had each other's. I remember it was like a big family and that people would take turns. And now when I look, uh, you know, with all of the Iranian community, it's really something else. I remember when I was. The only time I got to go to Iran was when I was 12 for a summer. Mm. And I remember going to the airport, this big window, and there were literally dozens of people pressed up waiting for us. And I thought, this is, I'd never, I couldn't imagine this scene. And... Who are all these people? I ended up, I had aunts and uncles and cousins mm. and family that I never knew. And this whole idea of having that was such an extraordinary thing for me at 12. And then to be allowed to go into Iran. Of course, I haven't been able to go back since, mm -hmm. but uh, that was a memory. Oh, that's beautiful. What brought your family to Canada? Well, you know, my father, my father and mother, they... Um, there were Baha'is in Iran in the 50s, and the Baha'is were encouraged to leave. So my father did, I think, very well in his business and said, we're going to heed that guidance. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, you know, uh, they went to Brazil. Oh, wow. And uh, that's apparently where I was conceived. And there's this tiny little insect that my mother, her whole body would have welts all over her body from this tiny little insect so they couldn't stay in brazil they, they stuck it out you know she was heroic in my mind heroic on so many levels for even transplanting themselves to mm -hmm. brasilia at that time was really completely unformed it was just extraordinary so they went there and stayed there and then and then uh, they went to germany post-war germany which you know there was not a place to live and so my mom was in this tiny little apartment, and, and uh, that's where I was born. Wow. And then as a young child, came, came to Toronto. Came to Toronto. So I always say, I think that there's this extraordinary, you know, when you think back, accidents, right? And mm -hmm. uh, the combination. So I have this love for my 
uh, Persian upbringing because whether we were in Iran or not, I got Rumi, I got Hafez, I got the most delicious Persian food. My mother had this sense of refinement and aesthetics and beauty. And my father was this engineer uh, who was very, you know, very practically minded. And that combination, a very well-known builder in Iran, I mean, mm -hmm. he had a huge construction company, which they gave up. And I remember uh, reflecting back that also, you know, you get Germany, Germany, this sense of, you know, craft and, and uh, precision mm -hmm. and this love for everything being done well in also, you know, smushed together with, with Persian sense of lusciousness mm -hmm. and, um, you know, this kind of, this, uh, you know, just absolute love. Anyone who's had an evening of Persian delight mm -hmm. would know that it's just this love of aesthetics. It's just, you know, all, all combined, Persians at a certain... Combined with family and hospitality, like Persian hospitality is unparalleled. You'd always had your best fruit for your guests. Mm-hmm these so-called guests, you know, because mm -hmm. they never showed up, but they were, they, everything was always ready for them. So this was, <laughs> so I remember that. And I, yeah. So you would go in your kitchen and be like, can I eat this, these berries? These oranges, like, oh, no, 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 the no, best no. oranges. We're, we're saving these for our guests. guests. When are the guests, guests coming? We don't know. They might yeah. be coming. These <laughs> mythical guests. <laughs> <laughs> so how does um, Sam, who's working at a McDonald's in Toronto, one of the few Persian families. How do you go from little Sam at age 14 to Siamak Kariri, the award-winning architect? Talk me through that journey a little bit. What interested you about architecture? How did you find that path? You know, Rain, I, I think that, um, as I said earlier, I'm just amazed at the accidents of life. Um, how do the most important things in one's life happen? I don't know. I mean... Uh, how do you meet the person you're going to marry? It's just, it's, you, you can't. So I'm always highly suspicious of people that say, I always knew I was going to be an architect because I absolutely had no idea I was going to be an architect. In mm -hmm. fact, I remember I, um, I was in love with sciences and mm -hmm. I was entirely a maths and science guy and I was drawing um, a lot of... Because I, I, I loved when, you know, in the biology, when you cut into plants and fruits, and mm -hmm. there was always this drawing involved. And I extended that because I, I suddenly got sort of this bug to be a doctor and started drawing muscles and bones and things like that. And then, uh, so I was headed entirely for um, medicine. And I had bought all my textbooks and and enrolled myself into U of T. And uh, in Ontario, you have to put three things on the, you know, on the application for okay. universities. So I, I had I'd done, you know, extremely well in grade 13. So I knew that I was going to get into my first choice. So just as a joke, I put architecture in my number three. And then I got a letter that said, you know, we'd like to interview you, which was kind of okay, but I had no reason to go for the interview. And I happened to be exactly in Waterloo, which is about, you know, an hour and a half outside of Toronto, across the street from the School of Architecture, exactly at the time of my interview on that day, because my sister's husband was a professor at the university and had arranged a lunch for all of us at that time. So I said, you know what, just for a kick, I'm going to go across the street and just do this interview. Mm -hmm. And I met this man named Jakob Spill, now I'll never forget. And he's just like fascinating. He said, what are, you, what are you applying for architecture? You're just a maths and science guy. It's obvious. I said, I don't know, I'm just in love with nature. And then he pulls out these beautiful photographs of carbon molecules that he'd been studying and patterns in nature and talked about architecture in the most amazing terms. And then he said, here draw this cup and he put a pencil in my hand and there's a whole committee and I drew the cup and they all said, yep, he can draw. And so I went away. I said, okay, that was fun. And 
Then at the end of the summer, it just kept sticking with me. And I said to my dad, I said, do you mind if I try this out for a year? I mean, oh, then I, of course I got in and then, and then they said, you know, 3,000 or something I tried. So I thought, okay, medicine is not for sure. Architecture, at least I got in, you know? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I just thought, oh, seems like a fun thing. Dad, can I try it out for a year? Mm. And if I, my father had said no, I would have said, great, okay, I'll just stay the course. And, and instead, my father said, you should do what's uh, in your heart. And I said, well, Dad, it doesn't hurt one year. I'll try this. And if I don't like it, I'll go back to the other one. Mm. Mm. And uh, the rest is history. There's not a lot of parents that say, well, you should follow what's in your heart. Yeah. Uh, so that's... Uh, well, no, but, you know, this is a big part of our Baha'i upbringing was this idea that you should be independent of thought and independent. And so my parents really pushed that in our lives, that mm. we have to think for ourselves. And my father was a very independent thinker. Why else would you move from a whole other country twice, displace yourself and put yourself really at risk? He just put it there because he wanted really the best for his children and mm. and wanted to stick to his, you know, to his guns in terms of what he believed. What is your family's history with the faith uh, in Iran? Well, I mean, we, Sasha and I always joke about this because her grandfather... Sasha, your wife. Sasha, my wife. Her grandfather became a Baha'i in Wisconsin. And my, uh, my, on my mother's side, I think I go back five generations. And uh, we always say, but, you know, you never really know when you became a Baha'i because the whole... You know, the whole thing is so deeply personal. You might become a Baha'i several times in your in your life. Uh, That's you know, a very good point. You know, but uh, so I don't think anyone can say it's a coat that your parents just give you and you just start wearing. I don't. I think everyone has to find their own way into it. And my parents certainly, uh, you know, raised us with values, with core beliefs, but they also never. Yeah, and neither did Sasha's parents. I don't. She, she was raised a Baha'i, but she, uh, you know, you have to find your own way in. So I think that's always been in our minds when we think about it with our children. You know. So for you, what was your way into the Baha'i faith besides being brought up a Baha'i and from a Persian family that goes back five generations? What was what was your way into the faith that you found on your own? I think. That happens on so many different levels. I mean, there's a heart connection, which I find myself connecting on a heart level, and then it becomes a bit distant, and you connect a bit more. It's a daily kind of a struggle for, for me, anyway, and, and to find that, that connection further and further. But I think on a, on a larger scale, I think that what I, what I love about the Baha'i Faith is two two things obviously and i had to say this at a commencement talk at one of the universities to the class and i talked about aspiration as aspiration being very important in one's life what you aspire to sets a lot of things in motion and so i think that aspiration in one's life is not uh, something soft and aspiration is very tied to enthusiasm which i find very exciting and the as, a, as you explore this idea, where does your enthusiasm come from? Where does your curiosity come from? Where does your zeal come from? Where does your drive come from? Where does, you know, the, all the parents say, find your passion. Not so easy, you know, this idea of where does your passion reside? And I think what I loved is that enthusiasm and the word enthusiasm actually means the God within us. Hmm. And possession so, from, of the God within us. Within us. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a need, so on a very personal level for me, there's a very deep-seated need. And God knows, like, I, it, it swings back and forth and around, but you, you, so daily I try to somehow refocus that, somehow something that you can draw that enthusiasm and zeal from and keep, mm. keep that something there. And on a larger sense, it's, I think... It's very, it's it's uh, very important in terms of aspiration to have the long view. You know, I think that 
this idea that you change things, not so much yourself. Everybody can have their own personal beliefs, and a lot of amazing people have amazing personal beliefs. The, the hard part becomes, I think, when you have to find a collective way to do things. And, and then to find a way to do that collectively in such a way that one generation builds on the next generation, builds on the next. And my father used to always say, if you want to drive, you've got to look far down the road. You can't look at your, the hood. Mm-hmm. And I like that saying a lot, like this idea that is a beautiful um, story of Abdu Baha, who's the son of Baha'u'llah, he says, old man on the floor planting fruit trees. You know this story? Mm-mm. He's planting fig trees. And man passes by and says, what are you doing, old man? You're on the floor, you know? And he says, I'm planting fig trees. And he says, what? And the other person says, why are, you, why are you planting fig trees, the little saplings? You're an old man. And uh, he, says, you, he says, because by planting these trees, generation from now, maybe two, will enjoy the fruit of these trees. And I, but you're an old man. You're on the floor. What about you? And he says, I, I eat the fruit of the person that planted the trees generations before. And I love this story because mm. it speaks to, I think, anything and anything that I've ever had that I hold dear is something that needs uh, time and, and a connection to the long view. Mm. So... I love the fact that my great-grandmother, who was this child in a village in Iran, somehow got connected to this idea that the world should be one. Can you even imagine? I mean, they they didn't even know what's going on in the next village. Mm. Mm. How could they see global unity? How could they see the equality of men and women? How can they see this idea of the importance of independent investigation of truth or that science and religion are actually one reality. These are very profound. So for that, she was ostracized. For that, she was, you know, cast as a child out of the village, out of her group. It's the hardest thing in a small village. And, and what? Because she knew that she wasn't going to experience that maybe in her lifetime ever. But this idea that you take this long view that maybe generations and generations, so this aspiration has this connection to a long view. I, I think those are the two things. So you had this aspiration. You had an enthusiasm for uh, architecture, and you had an aspiration to, to follow that. How, does that. how does that connect to designing and building mm. places of work, places of worship, places of residence? Well, you know, um, for me, I I told this story on the TED Talk, and I've told this story many times. I was studying, um, really, there was a, I think everybody encounters this differently, but there was a a time when I was uh, at school, and I walked across the street to an art gallery, which was in in our university is the art gallery designed by the great architect Louis Kahn. And uh, I happened to see the security guard run his hand across the concrete in such a way that I was really like, I could see that this security guard was deeply moved by this uh, work of architecture. And I, I was, I don't know, something tweaked in me. Um, I saw that... Uh, Architecture has this capacity to uh, elevate, to touch the spirit. And, you know, okay, so across the street we were learning things that more mostly about the head stuff. But here was like a connection of the heart. Here I was seeing something that, that uh, was a lifelong question, which was how does architecture do that? I mean, you know, music can bring you to tears, how does it do that? Uh, you can stand in front of a painting and you might you might get weak at the knees. But actually, how many times in your life have you had architecture do that to you? You know mm. that you that you have an emotional connection. Mm. And so, uh, 
I liked that. And I liked the fact that it was a security guard. He didn't have a PhD in architecture. It was, and so it had this, it touches on so many different interesting levels where you, where you see that we have this capacity to recognize beauty and everyone has it. Mm -hmm. And we have this, this kind of connection. We're hardwired that way, which is very exciting. And so how do you do that? And so you begin this, this search, you know, of course it has to have architecture has to work and it has to be on budget. Those are not things that you live for. What you live for though, is that emotional reaction that architecture that you want that kind of a feeling. You want that, that reaction people were, you know, they it's wonder serenity, become something you just connected. And so that has been the search so that architecture, like poetry, like music, like painting, can become like a prayer. I like this, you know, the, and mm. so, and this sense that you're connected with something aspirationally um, in your profession, pretty cool. And it could carry us. And people enjoy it. So you, as you study it, you know, I've been at this now for almost 30 some years and you know like look look at think about something like proportion proportion is very mystical uh, like what is it with proportion that certain things just look right and hmm. and what is that is it, very it's like tied to mathematics it's tied to um, or let's say the space between things everyone knows in composition in music it's it, the space between notes in painting, it's the space between elements. In architecture, it's very important to have this sense of composition mm. or center, mm. this connection to light, which is very, very, it's like you could spend your whole life just studying materials and light, craft, how things come together, and detail. Why is, why is refinement so important? And so as you begin to connect that, with you know your higher aspirations, you realize that everything has this kind of extraordinary interplay between the measurable and the non-measurable, the material and the non-material. All of these things are metaphors for each other. Which one is real, you, you lose sight of. Maybe the other thing is real. Maybe this is just a reflection of that. And it gets very, very exciting because you start to think, well, how is it that we have this universal connection? And anyone in the creative arts realizes that it also starts to blend very, very quickly. People, You can have this universal language about the process. Mm, that's beautiful. Wow, there's so many ideas in there. I don't even know where to begin. I've certainly had transcendent experiences with architecture, but I think the most profound experiences I've had in architecture and design are at the Baha'i World Center. Um, with the Ark on Mount Carmel, with the holy places and the shrines. And, of course, this was so important to Shoghi Effendi. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he studied it. He labored over architecture and design and certainly the shape and design of the gardens. Mm -hmm. um, it just brought to mind for me, in the arts and in design, you want to reflect the kingdom of God in what you're building. Well, you know, this... this, uh, Or you aspire to it. You'll never fully reach it, but you aspire to it. Yeah. I mean, it's so beautiful because, you see, you say uh, that there's something there. That's what I'm getting from what you're saying. Okay. There's something there, which then you are manifesting here. Yes. That's a very, very beautiful, powerful idea that it actually exists. And I remember it's very, uh, I mean, now we're getting into this kind of mystical realm, which frankly, I, I don't mind talking about because Let's I go feel there. it many times. Let's go there. But uh, I know that when... We're living uh, in a world of metaphor here when the reality is on the other side. Other side. And so, but there's a lot of substance to that way of thinking, I think. Uh, because uh, when, for example, when Abdu'l-Bahá laid the cornerstone for the temple in Chicago, he very clearly said to everyone that was gathering that the temple is already built. 
Now, why did he use the word already? He could have said the temple will be built or the temple is built. But to use the word already built is very powerful because it suggests something. And um, 50 years, the community agonized. It went through phases. It had to be stopped. It's not easy. Like you think of the, the sacrifice and the persistence, which I those are two words I love very, very much. Um, because for some reason, that's part of the fuel for creating good work, is those two. But I think that that then suggests to me that it was there and it was made to bring, uh, it was brought here. And I remember just two years before we finished the temple in South America, one of the Baha'is down in South America, name is Pancho Amenabar, and I mentioned this at the opening. Um, he said to me, you know, that there was a man by the name of Hand of the Cause, very beautiful man by the name of Feizi. And Mr. Feizi told Pancho in 1974 that he had a dream years before. So this is a dream not in 74, but a, many years before, that he saw the temple for South America set against the Andes like a crystalline structure, like the Shrine of the Baal. Mm. The reason I love the scale of the Shrine of the Bob was that it has this extraordinary intimacy. Mm. Anyone who's ever come up to it feels as if you're wrapped in, you're enveloped by the building in a very beautiful, intimate way. But at the same time, it's this, you know, relatively small building that holds a whole mountain. Mm. And I love that kind of scale of the building that it could do both of those things. Usually when you have a monumental building, it, it makes people feel small. Mm -hmm. But the Shrine of the Bob actually makes you feel noble. And, and, and it was that same uh, combination that we were after with the temple. And uh, the concept for the temple really um, came from this wonderful quotation that says that uh, if you reach out in prayer... Uh, you have to imagine, like, how, how, how are you going to come up with a concept for house of worship and a new form for house of worship, hopefully new? Uh, so it's, it's absolutely terrifying. Mm. And so how do you begin? A, how do you begin? And I remember I, I really had no way in, and I felt this was likely not going to be something that I would feel uh, worthy of entering. And uh, I remember coming across this one beautiful quotation that says, a servant is drawn unto me in prayer until I answer him. And when I've answered him, I become the ear wherewith he heareth. For thus the master of the house appeared within his home and all the pillars of the dwelling become a light with his light. I remember thinking this is so interesting because, first of all, you know, your prayer has to be answered. That's already creating a very interesting moment. Mm. So you pray, your prayer has to be answered. And if your prayer is answered, your inner being becomes alive with light because the master has returned to his home. It's fascinating. So then I thought, you know, I, I've had people like that in my life. I've had people that I look at them and I say, these, these people are radiant. <laughs> and you can feel that radiance. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of my grandmother, mm -hmm. one of them. And, uh, and I thought, how, how do we create a building that has this idea that embodied light becomes a kind of central driving idea for the concept and so this idea of building with two layers which is not new okay but the fact that we the outer layer was this material this cast glass that we then developed and then the structure comes between and then there's this translucent light uh, stone sorry on the inside and as a comp composite 
it holds the light. It doesn't let the light through. So when light comes in from the outside, you feel the interior of the temple come alive. Mm. And at night, of course, the whole thing reverses and you get emanation. You become surrounded by the temple in the landscape and it becomes emanating light. And I think that's, that, that really sprang the, the evolution of the design came from this beautiful quotation. Hooper Dunbar has said in a couple of talks that I've heard him give that Abdul Baha always exhorted us to become light incarnate. It's very interesting. So I was trying to think how, how could we make an architecture that could do that? And so the idea of a building with two layers, an outer layer and an inner layer, and then the structure was very light in between. And the materials would not let light through, but embody light suddenly came. Mm. But then the form was really, I like the idea that the temple would have a what I call the one step. Most of the temples have either a, a two-step or a three-step. Chicago has, for example, a three-step. It has a dome and then a platform and then the base. Mm. Mm. And, and Or some of the others have a, like a two-step. Mm-hmm. But I like this idea that it would just be one volume, one mm. totalizing volume. But then we got caught in this form of it looking like an egg. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't escape the egg. And it's very hard form because it's so powerful uh, form to escape the egg. And I remember seeing this video that a little uh, five-year-old had made uh, where... He moved the light from one part to another, and the, and the plant would move and reach for the light as he moved the light. It's very, imagine a five-year-old, but I, I, it, I, it just occurred to me that we have to have movement because everything in the Baha'i writing speaks of uh, prayer not being an isolated thing, but it actually is only... A true prayer, if it is connected with service or movement or action, it's not. It's not a thing you just go in the corner and become an Say ascetic. And, yeah, yeah, that it ha- that is like breathing. You cannot just breathe mm-hmm. in. You have to breathe in and you have to breathe out. And so this idea of movement started to come into the design, and then the torquing and the movement and the veils and the translucency and the embodied light. That's... But I love, you know, just speaking on a practical level, I love that the, the torquing and movement of it, and I'm picturing the structure in my mind right now, is was essentially like, how do we get it to not look like an egg? Yeah. And I mean, there was more to it than that, but I love that those are some of the struggles that and an architect stumped. at your you're level stumped. is still up against. You're stumped. And I mean, uh, I think this idea of... The temples, mm-hmm. the institution of the Mashkol Askar, this new institution, is something that really has no historical precedent. It is beginning for those of us, you know, architects that are attempting to give it form. It's a whole new problem. Okay. When you think of it, this is a building that, first of all, has no clergy. There's no pulpit, so it has no, none of the kind of traditional conventions of front and axis and organization and congregation. It's a whole new okay. idea of worship. Also, it's by design has to be welcoming to people of all religions, all faiths, all economic strata, all race. Mm-hmm. It should feel as if it's their place of worship. And in that sense, uh, even if you have no religion at all, you should feel like this is your place. Mm. And so if it looks like a synagogue or a church or a mosque or anything that has come before Mm -hmm. it, it won't work because by nature it will exclude. And uh, there's a wonderful quotation in the Baha'i writings. Abdu Baha describes Mm. true modernity as the renewal of religion, which is interesting because really we're in the early days of what we might call this new expression. So how do we give form 
to this new idea. That's the challenge. And I remember being told that success would mean that a 14-year-old would look at the building and say, I want to go there. Mm. And that kind of sense of wonder, mystique, joy, attraction, that it become an attractor. And so I can't tell you how happy I was to hear last Sunday that literally 18,000 mm. people from all different walks of life, all different uh, religions, backgrounds, were coming to the temple, lining up for three hours, six wide, mm. two kilometers long to come and spend some time. And many of them, if you read it on Instagram, which is so wonderful, you get the kind of inside scoop, they say, this is their place. Mm. Um, so these are early days for the faith, early mm. markings in architecture. So we're, we're, we're struggling for a, a form and a typology and all of those things. But the thing that, um, the thing that really mm. is engaging us right now is that it's very similar to being a Baha'i today, which I think is a fascinating study in itself, is that we really don't know what the faith will look like or is. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's at the very um, upper ends of creative processes. It's like a scientist who has a hunch and then just goes into the wilderness of science exploration and starts to explore mm -hmm. that hunch. Mm -hmm. Or mathematics. Ma a true mathematician knows this. You, you start, you're in this kind of you know, crazy world of search. Uh, painters know this. Painters, mm -hmm. they don't know what the painting will look mm -hmm. like. You have a blank. Have no idea, you and you start. But you you engage with what, with feeling, you engage with intuition, mm -hmm. and so the process of design, if it's good, is like falling backwards. You have to let. This is what I call falling backwards. Is the science? You know, in psychology, they say the test for trust is you stand and you. You let someone catch you. Right. And I say, well, a really good creative process, you know this, Rain, is when you let the process catch you. The mm -hmm. worst is when you know where you're going. Because mm -hmm. then it's boring. It never ends up good. So if I if I knew what the temple would look like in the first few mark, I, I could tell you that for sure I would know that it's not going to be that good. Mm -hmm. But the real, um, the really scary, the really terrifying uh, part is that we have no idea. You have no idea if the process will lead you somewhere interesting. You're just going to let the process take you. Mm -hmm. So it could end up a flop. It could end up an egg. Not that there's anything wrong with eggs, but in this sense, <laughs> we were about halfway through and we didn't have anything interesting. So the process, you have to believe in the process. And secondly is you have to be a bit crazy. <laughs> I love the story of Majnun and Leili. You know the the story uh, of mm. Majnun. Majnun means crazy lover. The Effendi said, I forget where, but I remember reading it a couple of times that he said, we need crazy lovers of Baha'u'llah. You have think, think about it. Quoted Who, what has ever changed history if it were not for the so-called crazies? Mm -hmm. And so... I love the story of Majnun because Majnun is on the floor. He's digging the earth and they say, Majnun, what are you doing? And he says, I'm searching for Leili. Leili is his beloved. Leili is the connection to the divine. It's a metaphor, obviously. Mm. But this idea that you're searching in the ground, think about it. So this idea of crazy search, the valley of search, right? Mm. And so all of that is a beautiful story of Majnun then getting um, run. He runs to avoid the uh, night watchman. You remember that? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he's in the ground, he's searching, and then he gets uh, this state of terror. So this is very interesting because anyone that has had the creative process knows that state of terror. Mm. Mm -hmm. Terror is you're halfway through the competition and you still got an egg. <laughs> T 
terror. You're, you have a plane ticket for Haifa to go show your design. It's like that. Or, <laughs> or after we were asked that you're five, six years searching for a site for the temple. That's terror. A state of terror. And then what happens is Majnun then hits a wall. You remember that? That's mm-hmm. the third part mm-hmm. is that he hits the wall. He has to climb the wall. Baha'u'llah wrote that great effort is required. you remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because anything that's worthy to get to the divine, to get to the Leili, also hits this wall. And anyone in any creative enterprise that I've ever talked to of any background knows about the wall. Every really interesting project hits a wall. Sure. And that you have to, you have to work like really. And so that's where the persistence and that's where the sacrifice comes in. And you have this, this idea that you got to stick with it. You got to put energy towards it. You can't give up. And then once he climbs the wall, he looks over the wall. And what does he see? He sees Leili. So finding Leili is not, is not just, you know, it's not just like, it's not going to drop from the sky. Mm-hmm. You have to be a bit crazy. And persistent. Persistent. You have to go through terror. The terror part is the hardest part, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. A lot of people back off from the terror. Uh, the terror is very hard to work your way through. And I think when I think of my grandmother again in that village, I can imagine that someone, that that was terrifying for a little girl to be ostracized and ridiculed in that small village for being who she was, but I, you know, so you have to be a bit crazy. You have to be persistent, all of those things. So you go into the, uh, to the universal house of justice and you pitch your idea. What's that like? That was uh, very beautiful. It was very beautiful. And, um, at that point we were, uh, I think somewhat detached, um, you know, it was really at that point. Whether it was in they, God's hands. It was really going to be whether they received it or not. And mm-hmm. and uh, the only thing I remember was that uh, it, it, we presented to a subcommittee of the House of Justice. And I remember uh, Douglas Martin was on that subcommittee. And he asked me, first question that was asked, he asked me, "Will this? can we build this temple in Canada? And I automatically assume, well, that means we we're not going to get picked because why would he be asking whether he could build it in Canada if mm-hmm. if uh, it was going to be picked? And then later on, he told me, no, no, no. It was because I loved it so much. I wanted to see also if we could build one in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, that was very nice. It was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. We had a, uh, no, that was. It's but, funny you you talked about building sacred spaces for the Baha'i World Order which is an entirely new environment, a new atmosphere. We don't know what it looks like, but the earliest churches were for congregations. They were for, uh, had a pulpit, a lectern. They were for, for a clergy member. Um, you've spoken before about Madrigal Azkar being connected to uh, the community. The community owns it. And uh, my wife always talks about this, and I, and I love it. She always says, you know, reminds me and reminds fellow Baha'is that we're not a congregation, we're a community. Mm-hmm. We're building, we're not building a congregation, we're building grassroots community. So how does a temple reflect that in a place like Santiago? Well, I, I, uh, I always love this idea that somehow the structure needed to be sacred, which is not so easy, you know. Somehow it needs to be self-evident that this is a sacred place, which today, you know, mostly not so easily defined. How do you feel that you're in a sacred place? And then it needed to be open. So... You know, whether you're wearing a poncho or a business suit or whether you're Mm -hmm. of this faith or that faith or no faith, Mm -hmm. this needed to be yours. 
And it needed to somehow symbolize through its openness that that somehow two things are at work. The Guardian speaks about this a lot, that um, we need the idea of the collective. We're hardwired, actually, to, to, to be connected. We, can, we don't enjoy ourselves when we're, all, when we're just no. isolated. There's something very interesting in that. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, as much as you might say, well, I, I, I am this and you are that, and I'll just sit in my corner and you just sit in your corner, doesn't really work. That somehow this idea of the collective is at the very core of what we are. We like being in a community. We enjoy somehow serving the larger picture of a community. We, it, it makes, it gives us a, a big part of, let's say, our happiness resides in that. And so it's connected at all scales. It's a scalable idea from global to country to, to village and all of that. Then the second part is that somehow it needs to symbolize this idea that we... Um, because it's a space where everyone can gather, how many spaces do we have like that? Right? Mm-hmm. That it belongs. I always loved this idea of museums and art galleries yeah. for that reason. I recently went to the New York City Public Library yeah. for the There's first time. And I'd never been, I lived in New York for 13 years. I never Perfect set foot example. inside. It feels like it, 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 it belongs to the city of New York. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Poor kid from the Bronx or a rich kid, a kid from the Upper East Side. I love that idea. Reading rooms, people studying together. There's an excitement in the building. Oh, it's beautiful. And the Met does that too. Hmm. And it makes you feel noble. And so I love that New York did that, uh, that they spent all the best amounts of money for space that belongs to everybody. I think there's a earlier before we started the podcast, you were talking about how you designed the temple um, for the long view that you designed it to last for. I didn't, by the way, the house of justice set mandated a 400 year horizon, 400 years. You know, I remember when we were doing the Ted talk, that was the thing that really gobsmacked them. And why is that? Because uh, they'd never heard of anything going that far. And and we were doing work for all kinds of clients here, universities, banks. I remember the head of one of the banks said they, they don't even, they can't even picture thinking three years ahead. Hmm. The world is changing that fast. And so to have anything with a 400-year design mandate is unheard of. The Sky Dome, which is a very famous building here, the engineer was telling me the other night that that had a 50-year, which was Already seen as, my God, you know, how can you think of 50 years? That had a 50-year design mandate. So this long view is fascinating to me. This idea that little by little, sometimes in big jumps, most of the time it's just persistent effort generationally. That's how you get effect. And I think this idea that you start building a community sacrificially, persistently, is a very powerful thing. It's like anyone knows anything you do with focus over time starts to have effect if you find the right thing. Now, one of the things, I'm going to jump topics a little bit. One of the things I love about your family, your daughter who's 12, your wife, and you, you're all very involved in community building activities, children's classes, junior youth classes. Um, how does that connect to what we're talking about, the institute process? So this is, this is one of the things that I find so uh, attractive about the approach currently within the uh, work of the Baha'i community is most of it is very from the ground up. And it's... It takes the long view. You can feel it. It takes the long view. Yeah. So my daughter, who is 25, 
has been working four years in one of the most uh, challenging neighborhoods in Toronto, working with youth uh, ages 10 to 14, and has this now has this kind of program where they're involved with youth activities. Uh, and you can see that generationally, now they've got five, six, seven different groups working together all across the city, which then are discussing things across region, which then have are cross-pollinating across the nation, and then also uh, exchanging ideas from one country to the next. Where is that happening? And this idea is that we're just, what we're doing is we're going to have a little effect on a few youth, and then that's going to scale up where these youth then take on their own group and start to become leaders of that group and start to put into the place some of this work with the same kind of effect. And it may not even have an effect until those youth have children. That's right. And want to affect their children's lives in some positive way. And remember, think back on Baha'i children's classes or glimmerings of hope in the first junior youth workbooks and put their children and give them that kind of education, a moral education, virtues-based education, service-based education. They will remember it. Uh, they, They might come back. And so I just think this idea that you take the long view is a very, very powerful idea. And there are very few things where you can actually engage in a long horizon line. You know, uh, the problem with everything today is it's so compressed that the young people are actually uh, throwing themselves into this kind of go for the big hit, fast hit, big hit, so that you can get in, get out, and then do what you like. That is not a model for, I think, a sustained life. It's not this idea. A fulfilling life. I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, I have, the thing is, all my friends used to say that. I'm just going to dabble in here, do the consultancy thing, get, you know, get my bank account full so then I can do what I really want to do. And the ones that actually uh, started with something small was actually quite sacrificial, slowly built up something, became this kind of the other route um, they have been the ones that I think have had effect over all these years. And I remember we started our practice very, very small as well. It was just little things, slowly, slowly growing that, I think is, is the right approach. Siamak, what are you reading these days? Are there any Baha'i writings that are inspiring you? Well, you know this, Rain. There's just so much to read uh, in the Baha'i writings and uh, you, it's an ocean of words. You think about how you can structure your life to sort of read a little bit every day and uh, draw from it and take it in. And But there's, uh, in particular, um, I enjoy what's called the hidden words, these beautiful little nuggets of inspiration that Baha'u'llah has given us. Um, And I find if I try and read them in the morning, it's also really the best. And um, I was thinking uh, this morning, when I was trying to think about how how this would go, I was listening to your interview of Michael Penn, who I love very much, and I had wonderful experiences, just memories, great... Uh, and uh, how he spoke about if you want to kind of change the world. Yeah, he was, I think he was giving this quotation from Confucius. Uh, if you want to change the world, you know, you change this. And then if you want to change that, you change this. And if you, it kept going more and more and more micro until it all was about changing your individual, each person's heart. Mm-hmm. And that's where the... That's where true kind of effective change is the the condition and sincerity of a person's heart. And I love that. I thought about this beautiful quotation. You know the one that, O son of being, thy heart is my home, sanctified for my descent. Thy spirit is my place of revelation 
cleanse it from my manifestation. And you know the one, O son of dust, all that is in heaven and earth I have ordained for thee except the human heart which I have made the habitation of my beauty and glory. Yet yet thou didst give my home and dwelling to another than me. And whenever the manifestation of my holiness sought his own abode, a stranger found he there, and homeless hastened unto the sanctuary of the Beloved, Notwithstanding, I have concealed thy secret and desire not thy shame. And I love this idea that um, the heart really is where uh, it all resides. And this, you know, you feel that whenever you begin a project, you begin, you want to get in, you want to find your way into a design, into a problem, whether it's a house or business school or... um, design of a hospital, uh, you you look for a connection there. And it's got to do with intuition. It's got to do with feeling, which are all intangible. Very hard to, Mm -hmm. very hard to explain in words, but you feel it. You feel when you have a good connection to the project and to the problem. And you know that this is coming from that place. I feel it. And so... When in the hidden words, it speaks about that the stranger and the friend cannot reside in your heart. I, I resonate with that very in the same much. Heart. Yeah, in the same heart, mm-hmm. and that this—it's a daily struggle to try and find a way to connect, uh, so that the friend resides there. And of course, I feel, I feel it when when yeah, the stranger is there. I feel when that connection is not strong i feel when it is stronger and that's what you uh, try for every day (laughs) some days are good some days are not so good and for me i and so it's a i think what i've always told my kids is i think as best as i know it's a daily struggle Mm. to uh to try and do that and but uh, i i really think believe that the that intuition inspiration all of those that kind of mystical connection that first has to start with that connection there it mm-hmm. resides there i love this idea that the home really his home is our heart and so when you think about inspiration enthusiasm all of that kind of zeal passion where does that come from if it's not if it doesn't reside there so i can feel that the word inspiration you think about inspire inspire to take in breath that the taking in the breath is like taking in the holy spirit and it comes from many different places but certainly i think it's not it's not uh it's not anything new for many people to know that they need they need to find some time maybe in the the best time is early morning when you have some quiet time to find a way to kind of create a bit of space for uh that part of yourself to feel a little nourished to to create to purify your heart for the descent try, of God. you know try yeah i think so i I can see my day going very different. I really can. I can feel it. So, and is this your struggle? What are what are your spiritual struggles these days? What what are you what are you dealing with? Well, you know, so many things. I mean, but uh, I think I think uh, that you know this this idea that. Um, we have to every day try to uh, have more and more of a connection with uh, that realm. 
is something that I try hard now, more and more. It's not, it's not so easy, this idea. It sounds very easy, but to live in this world, to be very engaged, to be very active, and a, to be a lover of beauty, but at the same time to detach and how to find that, you know? And so when I spoke about the creative process being one where you just let go, how to find that connection where you can both be deeply engaged, you know, at a very meticulous level where you're really concerned, very deep level, but at the same time be able to let go so that you feel as you can allow yourself to feel. Mm while you're doing the process. And so that's a constant struggle. On a personal level, I won't discuss it because there are too many things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. The, I always feel that when I read the hidden words, there's all these hidden words and all about like, don't attach to the material. Give your heart to the spiritual worlds. Don't become, don't mire yourself with the, with the material, with your base wants and needs, but... But, you know, soar like a bird beyond. Like, there are all these exhortations. And I read them sometimes like, yeah, but it's really hard. It's very it's really they're hard. Op- they appear to be entirely opposite. But I, was, I, I suddenly had this interesting revelation. Maybe it's the obvious. My wife always tells me I get inspired by the obvious. <laughs> Captain <laughs> Obvious, my kids call me. But um, this idea that uh, maybe... Uh, all of the, the, you know, so you think about the knowledge of God. And there's this sense that, well, you know, um, people say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, believe in God because um, X, Y, Z, you know? And they say, well, um, what gave us the, uh, the arrogance in a way to feel like we should know God? Because um, anything created uh, really shouldn't have any inkling of understanding, even the approach of an inkling of understanding of what created it. So I would, it's, it's as if saying a piece of music that Beethoven wrote should understand Beethoven. There's a, there's a huge, there's a wide gulf of difference there. And I was thinking that then maybe our entire purpose, in a way, here is to come to some sense of understanding that really everything that is tied to all of these crazy struggles that we go through, that you're talking about, are um, a perfect assemblage of struggle. Um, That it's absolutely, we don't understand the journey So if you don't understand the journey, you don't understand what you need to prepare for that journey. And if you don't understand what you need to prepare, then it it seems peculiar, it seems crazy, but maybe all of this struggle and the the suffering Mm -hmm. that any one of us, you could name anyone, goes through, is actually there's a really clear purpose for it which we don't understand, but it's as clear as the kind of craziness of an embryo in the womb going through everything that it goes through in preparation for this world. And and if you just suspend that arrogance that I spoke of, where you go, this this suffering doesn't, you know, it's just uh, impossible to understand why you would go through this. It's kind of crazy world. It can't possibly be a purpose behind this. Then, if you just suspend that for a moment, then suddenly for me, I don't know, maybe it's an obvious idea. I just thought, hmm, maybe it is perfect. Hmm. Hmm. I've never heard it, heard it put quite that way before. That's, that's really beautiful. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. I feel like we could go on for another couple of hours. <laughs> There's so much more territory to cover um, in the building of magical Azkars and the what an architect does, um, the marriage of artistry, design and engineering and spirituality that goes into your work. There's so many more topics we could dig into, but we just don't have time 
yeah. right now. And but thank you so much, CMAC Hariri, for your for your time and giving up your home this afternoon for this conversation. Thank you so much, Rain. Enjoyed it. It was very nice. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.